um, featured on Sunday, I believe it was. So I said, this will be a great time for us to talk about it and kind of get feedback on, on the show. So. Totally. So, so Catherine O'Kane and I, we were board members. She's still a board member. I'm a former board member of New York Women in Film and Television. So I got to meet this fantastic talent and also homegirl. <laughs> uh, we both were from Virginia. But Catherine is a producer, a director, writer, writer, showrunner. And Catherine has um, the, the she is actually was actually a showrunner for a Netflix series, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Did I get it in the right order? Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And so she had a show that actually premiered um, her episode on Sunday, Death Row Stories. And so we definitely want to kind of talk about that process of Death Row Stories and then also how it relates um, unfortunately, to what's happening now and what happened last week. Um, so just want to say again, thank you. And so just want to hear about, you know, your, your projects. And I think we should start off with Death Row Stories because that was very recent. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So um, I can tell you a little bit about the show that aired um, on Sunday. Um, so Death Row Stories is a show about the criminal justice system and in particular Death Row. Um, it's been going on, it's been airing on CNN and HLN since 2014, and it mostly focuses on the stories of people who are either currently on death row or were on death row. Um, and, and the formula is kind of like, seems like a, a very dry, matter-of-fact case, uh, and then you dig a little deeper and you realize that the details don't really add up. And um, that was certainly the case in, in the episode that I did um, about Corey Williams. Um, I can tell you a little bit about that episode if you'd like. Yeah. Yes, that would be great, thank you. So, um, so back in, I wanna say 19, 1998, 1999, mm -hmm. there was a house party in a neighborhood, in a suburban neighborhood of Shreveport, Louisiana. And there were some teenagers who had, um, you know, had been hanging out, they were watching movies, they got hungry, they wanted to order a pizza. So, and then there were other, another set of teenagers who were just kind of hanging out outside, hoping they'd be invited in for the pizza when it arrived. Uh, pizza guy was late. He showed up, he apologized, he said he got lost. One of the kids who was hanging out outside had been flashing a gun earlier in the day. And when the pizza guy, as he was leaving, this kid said to him, I ought to jack you up for being late. Nobody really thought anything more than that. The kids inside shut the door, to eat their pizza, they heard gunshots, ran to the window in time to see the pizza guy's car cross the street and crash into the house across the street. And then everybody ran. And everybody ran because they were teenagers. They lived in an impoverished community. They're all African-American. And this was Louisiana. This is Shreveport, Louisiana. And so mm -hmm. that's basically the crime. The pizza delivery man was shot and killed. They, he was robbed of, I think, $20 in cash. It was just really yeah. sad. Yeah. The police eventually rounded up all of the kids who were there, both outside and inside. And after six hours of long questioning throughout the night, the youngest kid, Corey Williams, who was only 16 years old, eventually confessed to doing it. But he wow. confessed okay. in a 
said, I did it. Can I go home now? I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Okay. So, you know, he goes, it goes to court. I think they spent a day on it. Um, total the jury spent an hour deliberating and they gave him a guilty conviction and they sent the 16 year old kid death chair an hour and so th there was no counsel there was no one like counseling him or anyone he basically he gave his uh confession they took it and just ran with it and it was all wrapped up in a bow very quickly just what happened and so we looked at this case um, as a straight up wrongful conviction case and wanted to learn more about it. Um, there have been many people over 20 years advocating on behalf of Corey Williams. So it turns out the deeper you get, there's one thing, he was only 16 when he was arrested. So he was a minor. Um, he also intellectually, and so he didn't really understand what was happening. Yes. Um, and, uh, and the court threw the book at him and the, the assistant DA at the time, the prosecutor, this was in the nineties was, um, kept referring to him as a predator over and over again. And his opening statements, this kid is a predator. He should be put away forever. So anyways, Corey ends up going to death row at 18, I guess is by the time he actually got there. Mm. And a child. Um, now, did he ever he, change his plea? So he, so did he ever he did. change his plea? He did. Okay, I'm Me, sorry. He yes. did. Because in his mind, the police had said, you know, just tell us what we want to hear and we'll let you go home. Right. So he did. He was like, all right, I did it. I shot the guy. Can I go to bed now? I mean, it's literally, that's what he said. So anyways, what we did was we had to go through all the 20 years of the case. We talked to his original defendant who when I asked him what he thought about the word predator that was used multiple times, he was like, you know, the word predator is prejudicial and I don't know why I didn't make a big deal of it. Mm. <laughs> and then there was a guy who took up Corey's case once he was on death row and he said, I really needed to weigh the situation. I needed to think, all right, I have, there's two things here. There's an innocent person who is it? in prison okay. Okay. Also, who's on death row and he said it doesn't matter if you're innocent if you're dead so he's my main focus at that point was to just get him off death row mm -hmm. to basically buy them time to look at the case a little bit more okay. um and that's basically what we did what they did and in 2002 the supreme court actually ruled on a case in virginia as a matter of fact that it was illegal to put people who have intellectual disabilities on to, to kill them, basically. Mm. Um, I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer, but... Right. That, but actually have to have a law day, right? Yeah. So the good news for Corey is he got moved off of death row. The bad news is he got moved into general population in Angola mm. prison, one of the worst prisons in America. And there he stayed for like 18 years before he eventually got out. Um, and so my what I was doing was telling the story of the crime and the 18 years of work that these um, three main lawyers were doing to try and get him out. And it was a challenge because I'm not a lawyer. I don't work in the criminal you know, justice system. And so a lot of that was an education for me and just figuring out what it all meant and how to get that in 40 minutes of airtime to tell the episode. 
And how did you come to the, pro the project? Um, so I, I read that you had several episodes for Death Row Stories. So how did you actually come to the, to the project? And, and if you can talk how you came to the project and then like going about that research for it. So, um, good question, Ross. <laughs> so, I, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I had um, made a show. The, the production company is called Jigsaw Productions. And I had done a show for them called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, uh, yeah. which is a food and travel show for Netflix, which did really well. And then um, we wanted to work together again. And this was the next show that popped up on their roster. So they tapped me to direct a couple of episodes. But it really was an education for me. Mm -hmm. The good news is um, Death Row Stories had, Jigsaw had been doing Death Row Stories for a number of years. They had three seasons under their belt. So they already had, like it was a well-oiled machine. So I was able to come in as the director with the case of Corey Williams already greenlit. And then I just had to peel back the layers of the story. And I had a team, I had a researcher uh, okay. named Eric Dittman and I had an associate producer, Lindsay Dittman, who really did a lot of the heavy lifting, reading the court transcripts, making uh, pre-phone calls to potential people who we would interview and establishing a relationship with Corey on the phone before we actually met in Louisiana. Okay. And, and so from, I guess, start to, as we talked about, it showed on Sunday. Um, what was that time? Was that a three month, six month year time period? The each episode, we did a double season, actually, we did seasons four and five together. And I was one of five directors um, that season. So I took on two episodes of those and um, each episode, I think roughly was about 15 weeks of production, mm. wow. which sounds like okay. time, but it's really not when you think nine goes into it. Well, and eight or nine of those weeks is the edit. So it just gives you, um, it gave us maybe three weeks of research and prep, and then a couple of weeks of just filming interviews. And then um, this show also has recreations as a part mm. of it. So okay. I re for this particular episode, I recreated the um, the pizza party inside and uh, like money on the ground. You know, it's, we don't have a lot of recreations, so okay. we stretch it as far as we can go. But um, you try to do it in a way that's really tasteful and that's going to move the story along because you know you can't forget the heart of all of these stories. There's a victim and someone who lost their life, so mm -hmm. that, uh, that's always in the back of my mind to right. be as responsible as possible. And so um, did you guys get feedback? Um, are you looking at like social media responses, feedback from because of the showing on, because the episode showed on Sunday? Did you, well, like, what was the, the feedback overall? I think people were pleased with it. Um, it's part of a, like I said, it's part, it's one of um, eight episodes that will air, you know, this spring. Um, I'm proud of it. It's a story with a lot of heart. Corey is an incredible human being. He was really wronged by the system. Mm -hmm. And yet he's got such a hopeful and positive outlook. And what I was hoping would do would be to really, you know, shine a light on the injustice that happened on the corruption on part of the as a part of the assistant DA, the prosecutor. Right. Um, say Hugo Holland, who was the prosecutor who convicted him within a day um, and called him a predator, has had uh, half of his death row cases overturned. 
Mm. He's been accused of uh, withholding evidence three times, and there's been no um, disciplinary action on his part. And what so, state was this in? What state? Louisiana. Louisiana. Okay. Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. That's tough. Um, and um, one, one of the things we talked about too, um, just briefly over um, you know text today, was about how. The, the correlation between what happened last week, um, well, it was not what happened last week, but what came to light last week with, Aubrey, you know, um, Ahmad Aubrey. So, and just how we keep seeing these cases of young men, young men of color um, mm -hmm. and young women who are in the justice system and whether it's not having the funds to get a lawyer or having mental illness and, you know, not really having anyone to fight for them. 18 years, like a, a couple of months or a couple of nights, but 18 years of your life for not mm -hmm. understanding when you said, yes, I did it, how you had to pay for that. So, um, oh, it's yeah. I think um, there's a direct parallel between this case and Ahmaud Arbery's case, because, you know, the reason Corey ultimately got out is that tapes, taped, um, taped statements by the witnesses that first night when all of the kids were round up, when all the teenagers were round up, mm -hmm. were eventually found 18 years later. And in those taped witness that the defense never got to hear back in the day during the original trial. So these tapes, taped witness statements came to light and they eventually all pointed to somebody else, not Corey. And so this okay. thing that Corey saying for 18 years, I'm innocent, I shouldn't be here, I believe in justice, and I didn't do it, finally came to light. So his lawyers took that evidence and were making their way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court was going to hear his case. Didn't mean he was going to win it, but they were going to hear it. And right. as soon as the um, Louisiana D uh, courts got wind of that, they were like, okay, we'll let him out. They're like, we don't want to retry this. Maybe we don't want to have a light shined on the way that things happen. So they um, agreed to let him out, but they didn't let him out scot-free. He had to um, plead guilty to time served, and he now has a, you know, a, a, this on his permanent record. So he yeah, wow. can't apply. So that's really the truth. So, so his record. So, so now he's out, but not really free. <laughs> He's exactly. out. He's out of the system, but he has this on his yeah. record now. Yeah. So what that means is, like, he can't. He doesn't qualify for public housing. He can't get a student loan. Up until recently, he wouldn't have been able to vote, but I think that that's recently changed in Louisiana. But you know, he lost twenty years of his life. And yet he's still like a really hopeful person, Roz. Like this is the thing that's really incredible about his story. He's mm -hmm. a man of few words. He's a hard worker. He's angry about the time that he's lost. Yeah. And yet he's self-aware enough to know that he should go to counseling and work through his anger. And he is. And that's more than I can say for a lot of people who are not intellectually disabled, who, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like he's really, it's an incredible story. Wow. Well, that, that has to be an amazing project to be a part of. And to, as I said, you working on the project, you talked about the amount of time you work on, and it comes comes around the same time that we have other cases, and it's, it's continuous, which is so unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, 
we talk about this parallel story and, and in Ahmad's case recently, it's they didn't make the arrest because the police saw the tapes. They made the arrest because we saw the tapes. Uh, yes, exactly. Because we saw the tapes. Right. Oh my goodness. So how do you, um, because you know, you work on so many different projects and you don't stay in one genre. How do you, as you're working on this, um, you know, keep positive um, and stay positive and moving forward. And I, I know kind of since I kind of think of that, that you want to tell the story and give justice to it. But how do you stay, you know, positive throughout that process? This one, working on Death Row stories on both episodes were really hard for different reasons. Um, Corey's case was, like I said, a wrongful conviction story with a lot of heart. So I was outraged because we should all be outraged by this. Mm -hmm. The other episode I did was um, a guy who was uh, in de on death row for um, killing this young woman and leaving her body in the woods. And that, this, that was a very science-based, it was about like bugs and entomology and how a body like mm -hmm. deteriorates over time. And that one was, it was all about science, you know? Um, and I, how do I do self-care? Well, I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> self-care during the production and provide a little bit of perspective um i tried not to take it home you know i tried to leave the work at work and not do too much research at home in my own space because i just wanted to keep my home and environment separate from the work that i was doing um and I think we have to rely on um, our social networks, our friends and our families and uh, mm -hmm. to blow off steam or vent to in, in times because yeah. it's a stressful situation, even when you're making a food show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And so because, again, this is your most recent project, um, do you have a call to action? Do you have something like, you know, you want people to, you have another episode, you kind of want to say yes, go and, you know, see this episode? Because I do, again, know that part of this is telling the show, story, showing that process of injustice, right, to get to justice. Mm -hmm. So um, how can we help? What can we do? Um, as we see these, you know, death row stories and. Well, a couple of things. One is um, the thing that I learned working on the show is that in, in most communities, judges and DAs are elected officials. And so once they are elected, there's very little oversight into, you know, what they do. Okay. Um, and most of the time they run on a platform of being tough on crime. And the way that you measure what you measure the, the metrics for tough on crime are you look at the number of convictions. And so that doesn't really encourage reform uh, or mm -hmm. critical or out of the box thinking. It's really just about processing people and putting them behind mm -hmm. bars really. And so I'm going to pay a lot more attention moving forward on um, who these people are who are running and what their uh, backgrounds are. And, you know, it's, it's more work for me as a citizen, but it's also my right. And so right, I think it's our right to it for sure. So that's number right. one. Um, there's uh, one thing I do want to read to you. It's why I'm looking over here because I want to make okay. sure I get um, we interviewed this uh, wonderful criminal justice activist named Curtis Davis, who works down in Louisiana. And he broke it down 
like this in the show, and I've got the quote. There are 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. If prosecutors get that right 99% of the time, that means there's 23,000 wrongfully convicted people behind bars. Mm -hmm. If they get it right 90% of that time, that's almost a quarter of a million people who shouldn't be there. So this is why we have to pay attention. Right. We've got so much to do in turn and, and this is also why the government shouldn't be in the business of killing people mm -hmm. because apply that to who's like who's on on death row again i, I want to get with the numbers right but last year there were 2656 people on death row mm -hmm. 90 if, again if you get it night right 99 percent of the time that's 26 people who could die who are innocent mm -hmm. and i just don't think we can afford to get it wrong we can't afford it. Yes. And it is so, it's so many stories and it's so many, and, and so many young people lose mm -hmm. that, that you see that it's like that 15 to 18 years old, they're spending 15 and 20 years in prison. So yeah, that's definitely a tough one. And we also, and you know, I also, there's, there's so many organizations um, doing the hard work. I know change of color is one that I follow. And mm -hmm. um, also one that I've seen like a lot, you know, they have campaigns around um, Ahmad Aubrey. So there are organizations out there mm -hmm. doing this work, but it's also great to have filmmakers like you who are, you know, showing the narratives of these stories so people can see the process. And of course, Ava DuVernay, um, you know, just these stories that we see. So I always kind of think about when you see these narratives and when you see documentaries, it is a call to action, um, whether it's for people to really understand what happened, for people to have empathy, for people to take action. So I think that's always important when we, when we see these types of stories. And I've got a couple more. But so that's, so one of the things, okay. If, if people are, I can give you a couple more. There's Um, there's the Innocence Project based out of New York, but they have s satellite offices everywhere, and they are a group of lawyers who um, okay. are specifically working on death row cases. There's the Equal Justice Initiative that was founded by Brian Stevenson, who um, many of you may know from the book and the film Just Mercy, um, and he's working out of Alabama. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then, like I said, there's Curtis Davis, who was in my show, who's an activist who broke down the statistics in a way. And he wrote a book called Slave State Apartheid in America. And that's a really great resource as well. Okay. Thank you. I love it. I mean, because also I know you've, again, I was saying that's from being on the board with your New York Women in Film. And I know um, you take pay equity very seriously, justice, you know, so I know you have several causes. And as you said, you said, wait a minute, I have a, a list. If you're talking about a call to action, I have a list of things that we can do. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and, and so guys, sorry, because this is a little bit unstable. So my my, my internet, but I do want to say, um, folks, um, you know, if you can, if you have questions, if you could put them in the question box, that way um, I, you know, I can go back um, and I'll probably start taking questions in about 10 minutes. Um, so thank you for that. I did want to um, go over because you won a James Beard Award for your film, Salt, Fat, Acid and Heat, that Netflix series. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought it was cool because it was a culinary travel show. So I was 
like, I want to go to Italy. I want to eat food. And I know that was, I mean, I was, I was willing to be your assistant. I was willing <laughs> to come and just hang out. What do I need to do? Do I need to be like the catering person? But no, this sounded so fabulous, but I know that is also a lot of work being a showrunner. And also I think one of the things you shared before is just kind of locations. You had different locations. So if you can kind of share like, some of the you know one or two challenges but also at the end like what was very satisfying about that project oh pulling it off was really satisfying, <laughs> <laughs> um well okay so salt fat acid heat for people who haven't seen it is a four-part travel show on netflix and these are uh, it's based on a book by the same name written by an author uh samin nosrat who's out of um uh, Berkeley, California. And she considers salt, fat, acid, heat as being the four elements to um, proper cooking or really tasty cooking. So we took each element and made an episode about it and we went to a different place. So for salt, we went to Japan. For fat, we went to Italy. For acid, we went to Mexico. And for heat, we went back to her hometown of Berkeley. And so there was quite a bit on it um and as you can imagine there's a lot of moving parts and you yes. know making that work plus it's food and you want to be able to show that in a beautiful way and um in some sort of you know process so people can see the beginning yes. middle and an end and we for a long time the acid episode was supposed to be in iran because that's samin's background her parents immigrated in the 70s and they have a very sour palate um, anyways, so it made sense to do the acid episode with mm -hmm. um, sour orange and all the different things that they cook with. And we had spent the whole summer going through all the visa processes. You can imagine, because Iran is a fairly closed country, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to make that work and get guides and talk to embassy and all of that. And then two weeks before we were supposed to go, um, this administration said some nasty things about that administration. And then all of a sudden, like they were burning American flags. <laughs> we just couldn't. Can't I had to pull it down. <laughs> right. We were all really sad. That was a really hard uh, phone call to Especially make. Especially it's I had her hometown. To... Yeah. Yeah, it's her home country. She was so excited to share her background and the wonderful food. And we were excited to go. Um, but that set off a telephone chain, right, to Netflix, to the production company, to the EPs, to the director, to Samin, all of us talking about what we would do. And we all agreed that it was not the right time to go. So we would have to find somewhere else. And this was right after Thanksgiving. And that gave me about two, gave me three weeks to pivot and find another country. So we just landed on Mexico. But Mexico cl basically closes down at Christmas time. Nothing's yep. open. <laughs> so uh, we were like pulling our hair out to try and, you know, cast it and find the characters and the locations and all the rest. But we, we pulled it off. And the thing about Samin being um, a very well, she's a very well-connected chef in, um, okay. in California, but she has a network that's sort of global. So we relied a lot also on her... Um, friendship circle and and people that she and her network and and we got it done but man that was tough and i guess what i learned from all of that is that when you have bad news that you have to deliver 
you just deliver it like the weather report. Yeah. You know, you just... <laughs> How do you deliver a weather report? Oh. It's just, you know, it's, uh, looks like storm clouds are coming. You know what I mean? But it's, it's like, I feel bad, but it's not my fault, but mm -hmm. I have to make it. And, and so, you know, you just, you do the best you can and you hope that people understand. And for the most part, people do. When people, right. when you behave grown up and the other people in the room are grown ups, you understand, okay, this is part of production, right? The best laid plans sometimes right. just don't work out. And because we have this, you know, wealth and body of experience, we know how to react quickly and, and move to the next chapter. And, and what was, uh, how many, like, what was the number of your crew traveling? Did you have different, did you have like a main set of crew for each different location? Okay. I had, I had, we had a core crew that traveled with us. Um, it's been a number of years now, Ross. So I can <laughs> You know, like it was always the producer, the director, Samin, of course. Um, we had the, the same um, uh, cinematographer, this wonderful Luke McCubrey, who made it all look so beautiful. He was there for every show. There's a second camera there for most of the episodes. So probably about seven or eight that we traveled. And then we picked up the same amount of people in the country as local hires as well, because... Okay. Once you land in a place, you're going to need people who speak the language, who can drive the trucks and um, mm -hmm. get the gear and all the rest. So we probably were a total crew of anywhere from 16 to 20 people with half coming from the United States and half. Yeah. Well, it, it was just so beautiful. So first of all, you, I, you know, the travel show and food, food and travel, who doesn't want that? But <laughs> I mean, each location was just so beautiful. And then just the sometimes subtle sounds of just having butter cooking in the pan. Like it was, I mean, I was just watching like each one. And I think it was, I'm trying to remember the one that it was a lot of pork and I don't eat pork, but I was like, this is a really It'll good, I was still into it, even though I don't eat pork. And it was just, yeah, it was beautifully shot. I'm a vegetarian. You what? I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> okay. That's right, you are. And so uh, for the folks, um, for the folks who, hi, um, Melissa, hi, folks who join, for the folks um, on, can you raise your hand or wave if you've actually seen the show? And if you have any questions, um, you can also put it in the question box. So no, I mean, that is my dream to have a travel show. Um, and I think I was sharing with you that I've um, relaunched my blog. And so when I started my blog in 2015, I, I wrote about film, travel and food, and none of it goes together. And people like, uh, I was like, uh, you know, because I love food, <laughs> like it doesn't go with anything else. So I love the whole idea of having that type of series. So you guys did it really well. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations on the award, James Beard Award. So how did well, you, I, how did your team hear when you heard about that? Pardon? Say that again. How did your team feel when you heard about the James Beard Award? Oh well, we were we were thrilled to be nominated, and then there was actually a ceremony, um, like an awards show at um, Pier sixty in Chelsea, and um, so we found out in the room and made an acceptance speech. But I should also say that um, the credit for uh, salt fed acid here absolutely <laughs> should go to Caroline Sue, as well, who's the director, okay. and. Um, we were saying the sizzling, the sound of sizzling butter in the pan, like that was all Caroline. She did a beautiful job with oh that. I love that. I was like, that's just so exciting, yeah. And all of that. <laughs> so that's cool. So, do we Definitely. have any questions? 
Oh, we do. So let me just check this. As a vegetarian, how was it to experience the butchering scenes? <laughs> well, I have two minds in that, right? I mean, I'm a vegetarian by personal choice. So, and I try not to proselytize and, you know, uh, for other people, like you, you eat what you want. Like, I think that's the way to go. Um, but I will say it was a little bit hard um, watching him like break the bones and, you know, carve this uh, pork up. But um, Lorenzo the butcher, I really loved him and his personality and had had many conversations with him on the phone before we arrived. So I knew <laughs> what I was getting. My he would send me pictures of like stuff he had butchered. I was like, okay, Lorenzo. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he really was an artist. And I, even though I wasn't going to join him in the meal, I could certainly appreciate the love that he had for the pig in the devotion that he, in the life that he gave the pig even beforehand. Like we went to the place where the pigs are and it didn't smell like animals. It didn't smell bad. I mean, he really keeps them in a nice place. They have a nice life. And then he broke the animal down and put it back together. And it really was uh, a work of art, I'll say. It really was. Well, Digital Sheila said those, those scenes were hard for her to watch. <laughs> yes, with the scenes with the butchering, yes. Mm -hmm. oh, but I love that. Um, and so I know this is probably hard to think, too. So there are four locations. Did you have a favorite? Can you say if you had a favorite? <laughs> like well, location? My favorite was Italy because that's the one that I went and I produced that one um, okay. as well. So for sure, I loved the Italy one. I mean, seeing the, the drone shots over the olive groves in, um, in these remote places in Italy was just, uh, it's really, it's a privilege what I get to do. And I'm really, really grateful that people hire me and ask me to do it. Yeah, that was really great. And um, so thank you. If anyone has any more questions about that, that series, that would be great. You can put it in the box. But I also know that you had a series um, that you were working on during quarantine. So I don't know if you kind of want to share that and what the process is. Um, I know you're really excited about it. And yes, it's going to come back around. We're just sheltering in now. But if you want to say a little bit about that project, because I think it's fantastic. Sure, I can tell you a little bit about this. So. Um... This one uh, was or is um, a four-part travel show for Disney+, Plus, their new streaming network. Um, it stars Jessica Alba, and it's called Parenting Without Borders. So it's a show where we intend to go around the world and we look at different parenting styles and different cultures and see how kids grow up around the world. And Jessica Alba is going to be the host of it. And we were two days away from departing for one of our locations when I had to pull the whole thing down. And again, it's like you have to do it like the weather yeah. report. <laughs> but <laughs> I a little bit of experience <laughs> to be able to say. I like that. But, um, the weather report so people can be prepared, right? So what are you walking into? Exactly. What do you have to prepare for? Exactly. Um, yeah. Sci signs point to thunderstorms for this one, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we're on hold right now, and Disney really loved the concept and what we were planning to do, and uh, I hope that we get to do it before too long. Um, unfortunately, now is not a safe time to travel or to go into people's homes, and that's what it would require in order to tell that story is to, you know, it's much more verite than um, than uh, any other sort of host-driven show because we want to see how families live.
Right. Well, I mean, I, I love the idea and I love Jessica Alba. Right. But I think also maybe even with this quarantining now, I think people, especially, you know, how parents have had to just kind of roll their sleeves up and, you know, teach. They're always teaching and, and educating their kids, but like full time and having a lesson plan and having certain things. I think it's going to be like a whole nother level <laughs> of what the family experience is now. So uh, I know you're looking forward to that to, to get back up and running. That's a really good point, Roz. I mean, I think when we come back, we, we will, of course, have to address the situation that we will have come out of. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how people adapt um, and how different cultures adapt too, right? right? Like some cultures adapt better than, than others and we'll get to explore that. Yes, and especially I think with quarantining too, like these streaming platforms are, are really doing well and just technology in itself and how it's keeping us connected. So I do see those opportunities expanding. Expanding. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> so, so do we have any questions for Catherine? Um, so I, I did kind of, um, I did have uh, some other questions, but I want to give people other a chance to. So as a role, you, as a, you have so many different roles, you've directed, you show, you're a showrunner. One of the things that um, I think when I first met you and I, I found that you also worked with Oprah in her masterclass. Um, and that's cool. So I said so many different things. You have the crime show, you have the travel <laughs> show, and then you've also worked on the master show. Is there something like when you started in this business, were you like saying, yes, I want to be a director? And how did you able to kind of leverage and, and try and, and do other roles? So what was kind of like your first vision that you wanted? I, I think... I don't think I really had a trajectory when I first started. I just knew I loved storytelling and I wanted to be in the business. And so I, um, to the best of my ability, tried to do as many different roles as possible. And I started out as a PA in the business, production assistant, and then an office production assistant. And then I was sort of tracked to be like the coordinator, project manager side. And while I can read budgets and put together a schedule it's not my passion and for some people they really really love that kind of structure and order and all the rest and for me I could do it but it was hard and I really wanted to be more on the story side of things so I at a certain point had to make a conscious decision to turn down those jobs in in favor of associate producer story producer and go that track okay. um and because I've said, talked about this before in other formats but, um, or forums, but I think because I did both paths, it made it, um, it has informed my story uh, showrunner approach because yeah. I've done the, you know, the production side, the straight production side and the story side and kind of combine those two together, okay. um, which because you, you have to look at the big picture, but also keep track of the details at the same time. Oh, that's cool being a story producer. So in your roles as director and producer, do you work a lot with actors? Um, it seems that, you know, you, as I said, you've done the uh, directing, producing the showrunner, but how does that work with the actors? That's a great question. So my background is mostly nonfiction television. Mm -hmm. So I work mostly on documentary, um, uh, documentary television and long format series, but I have, um, also worked in commercials and that's when I get to play with actors and that's so so fun actors and yeah. prop department 
and all the rest. And so really, I, I would love the next frontier of my career to be in the um, scripted world and dealing a lot more with actors, for sure. Okay, that's very good. That's very good. Um, and then, so, so your collaboration across the board. So what do you see? We know we, we talked about the Disney Plus. What do you see next beyond that? I think you're writing something. You're like dwelling into writing now and producing, executive producing. Yes, well, so I've got um, a half hour comedy series I'm working on uh, writing with actually a couple of other Nywift ladies. Um, so we're working on that. Um, I have a number of uh, documentary projects um, that I'm developing right now. One may, one is um, an underwater exploration series with uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which I don't know, we might be able to film in July when we're scheduled to, but I don't know, we'll, we'll find okay. out. Um, water, but so maybe there's no corona <laughs> underwater. Um, we don't know then, what's happening. Yeah, who knows. Um, and then I also have uh, this um, sort of multi-part series that I'm developing that's um, a hybrid. So it's part documentary and part um, scripted, which I think uh, will be really, interesting but i can't talk about it yet but i'm working okay. on it um so yeah just trying to stay motivated but I, I will say it's really hard right now i mean i don't know about you but i have good days and bad days and sometimes it's all i can do to like watch a tv show and be able to focus and so you know i i, I know a lot of people are like oh, i've got so much time i should be writing the great american novel or i should be doing this, that but it's like yeah, we got a lot of time, but we've got a global crisis, you know? We have so. a global crisis. I've kind of seen like two different camps, right? I think at one point, the first two or three weeks, it was like, hey, if you come out of quarantine without a new skill, you are not motivated enough. And, and I don't think that's fair. I think there's some people who are like, hey, I have time to actually write that novel. I have time to actually <laughs> clean my house. I have time to be with my family. So for me, I, I relaunched my blog. I'm doing, you know, live. Um, this is what keeps me sane. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have to, you know, stay, I have to stay busy. Um, I've been doing everything pretty much on my list except the exercise. I've been cooking. I've been doing free classes. I've been, and I was like, okay, what about these? I, I did yoga one day and I think I did it for 10 minutes, but I do love Alvin Ailey extension classes. I will have to say that has been fun. So I did a West African class and um, they had salsa but I'm doing everything but the exercise. <laughs> and then I have other, other friends who are like, yeah, yeah. When I come out of that's, here, I want to be like, I, I want to lose 15 pounds. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be the, my case. <laughs> that's not going to be my case either. And then, you know, and then I think about the mothers and fathers of parents who are homeschooling. They're probably like, yeah, it's good family time, but I just really want to sleep. So I just think whatever you need to, to do to get to for the quarantine, do it. Yeah, you know? I think so. I know for a lot of people who work in the creative business who are constantly producing and putting stuff out there, it actually is kind of nice to have some quiet time to refill, recharge our batteries, refill yeah. um, you know, the, the coffers with whatever we need to um, inspire us again, right? And mm -hmm. so taking time, I think, is really, really important. Um, otherwise, I mean, I've said this also before, but like, if you're just rolling from one project into the, uh, the next, it's like creative cannibalism. And so <laughs> I've heard that, this, one. you know, so this forced time out, like, kind of awesome, even if you're not, 
ingesting a lot of material just to have this quiet time for your brain, I think is there's, there's value in that. And for the folks who are joining us um, on live, like what have you guys been doing or have you found it like, okay, I'm going to work on that creative project or have you found it like, yeah, it's really nice to be able to sleep like 10 hours. <laughs> or are you just of water? Cause you've got kids and, and everything else. Like it's, yeah. I have this one friend who, um, you know, is uh, now her, she works from home. Her husband is now home. They have their 10 year old daughter and she's trying to, you know, suddenly be her daughter's assistant for all of the, you know, all of the schoolwork. And okay. she's apologizing because she's like, I'm sorry, I haven't, you know, written that thing that I was supposed to get back to you. And I'm like, it's okay. Like it's, it'll happen when it happens. Yeah, it does. I think the first two weeks, and one of the things I'm loving is, you know, having these platforms like Facebook and, and Facebook Live. And I think, you know, when I look at the, the creative community, folks have really been able to leverage it from the DJs to the musicians, mm -hmm. um, to people just kind of sharing their passion and jumping on and, and you know, talking to people. So I really love that part of it. Because um, I think even the first week, like, D-Nice came on, it was like, oh, what, someone can actually have a 100 thousand folks followed them and I don't know like last week um, not last week actually I think it was earlier this week Jill Scott and Erica Badu had like 800,000 people on you know amazing. I mean, yeah it was amazing and then I was on another um, Facebook live where it was Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni and I'm like okay <laughs> you know wow. so so for that um, I am very like grateful to see um, all of these different creative paths. And, you know, if that was an event where Oprah had an event with Nikki Giovanni and Angela Davis, I probably wouldn't have seen it because it would have been somewhere <laughs> in Brooklyn with a limited amount of seats. But, you know, I can now join Facebook Live and uh, see these things. So I, in the last two weeks, I'm just like amazed at all of the greatness I've seen online. There's a lot of, there's a lot of noise, but there's also a lot of intimacy too, I think, in that. So when you find like, the people that you're interested in or you want to follow i think it's it, it, for me it's been fascinating to to keep in touch i mean i think Questlove does a regular dj session too like at least yeah. once a week if not more oh yeah um, i think it's almost every other night i see him pop up and he's yeah. a great storyteller he's a great yes. storyteller he has so many stories about the, the artists you know that he's worked with he knows everybody right? yeah and he's <laughs> i think he's like a historian too like a yeah. musicologist or I don't know what the term is, but yeah. Yes, definitely. I um I I might I don't have a regular sleeping pattern during this. So sometimes I'm up on and I find them on Instagram when I'm on Netflix now, which is really interesting to me. So I would be up for five o'clock in the morning and whether it's a DJ or whether somebody um, you know, popping up and just kind of like, Oh, hey, just want to talk to people. <laughs> so so it's interesting times, definitely. Definitely. Um, so we, we can, we're about to wrap up. And so any questions, please put them in the box. But you know, again, Catherine, I know you're really passionate. Um, and as being on the board of New York Women in Film and Television, I know one of your goals, you're like, okay, I'm using this platform and I really want to focus on like pay equity.
equity for women. So if you kind of just kind of want to talk about what has happened or some of the initiatives you have worked on, you know, at Nine With and why that's really dear to your heart. I guess um, the reason why equal pay is so important to me, besides just the, the obvious, like, duh factor, it's just, right. uh, <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> but it's remarkable how little women are, are paid uh, as to men, and, and also how that breaks down on, depending on race as well. It's just, it's, it's criminal. And so I, that's a, a big, passionate thing that I, feel strongly about. Um, and I think it's because of this. It's when you are paid um, properly, when you're compensated appropriately for the job that you're doing, you're not, you're also being respected for the work that you're doing. And that gives you the money to do the things that you need to do, but also the confidence to do the things that you need to do. And so if you're paid properly, then you can put out all the rest of the fires in your life, right? And so, I, I don't know, in the, in the priorities for me, I think that's the most important thing. So any kind of programs that we have that help women negotiate, anytime, just as a, as a mentor or a friend or a colleague, when people come up to me and they're talking about a job or whatever, I've always got time to strategize and scheme about the best way to, um, to get paid properly. And I will, I will give everybody a tip here is that I, I feel like the person, uh, he or she who gives the first number loses. So if someone says, what's your rate to me? I usually say, um, I'm sure I can work within your budget because I don't want to give a number that's way too high that they're not going to consider me or right. way too low that and say yes to. I would rather know the budget range that they're working on and then try and meet that if I want to do the job. You know, if I want to do the I job. I have tried that. <laughs> I have tried that. I had talked about just being, you know, I'm flexible. I can work within your budget. And it's like, what's your rate? <laughs> Come back and what's your, what's your rate? And so I think you're definitely right. When you're compensated, it shows right away your value. So when you start that new project, that new job, you're coming in like, okay, I feel valued. I feel seen. <laughs> so that's a big deal. Um, and so we're, we're still fighting and I, that. And right. I'm going to bring my best to that job because I'm being compensated appropriately. That person respects me. Everybody wins when you do that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes right. we're talking about difference. I worked one job, you know, this story, but I worked a job a number of years ago where I was the senior producer, um, on a job that went for many seasons and we were in our, and I'd been on it from the beginning. We were on our fourth season. And by accident, I, I, you know, I picked up a bunch of papers at the copier. And by accident, I happened to grab somebody's invoice, a man's, who had just come on that season. He had not been on there from the beginning like I had. And he was making 100 bucks more than I was. And I was just like ready to turn over the table. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, told the executive producer and I told the line producer and they made it right. But I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Right. So you, you, you have to, I think, you know, we think about creative projects and, and corporate working. It's good to know the budget, right? It's good to try to do the research. And I think my like second or third job, my first job out of college, I didn't negotiate at all. I was just really happy. 
<laughs> and then I started <laughs> and I started negotiating. I remember after kind of talking to some of my folks about what the range was, I was like, I'm just going to really just go for what, you know, this is the range I'm going to ask for. And they said yes so fast. I was like, you still were way below. You were just so way below what the salary rate was. But um, negotiation and, and knowing your value and knowing what the budget is and knowing what that salary range is, is very important. And so I, you know, I do believe that we need to negotiate more. We need to ask it. And even like for applying for jobs, I think I see 10 different um, requirements and I'm like, ah, I got nine, I got eight or, or, you know, and it would be a guy who has like five or six. He's like, oh my, I got this, I can do this. So I think it's our mindset too, you know, it's like, yes, we, we can do this job and we deserve it. So I just kind of wanted Absolutely. for you to get it. Uh, like doing your research and knowing your value because that's one of the reasons why transparency is also a big deal with me because if rates were transparent then the negotiation would be easy right would be like this is how much we pay this kind of person that's who you are that's what the rate is like it wouldn't be this you know soul sucking difficult painful thing every time that was right. hidden behind some like weird curtain over there. So um, yeah, I try and ask people, I'd share my rates with people. I tell people what the rates are because otherwise how else are you gonna know? Right, you, you have to share that information across the board, right? I know and I think mm -hmm. too, when I first um, came to my first working experience, it was like, oh, you don't talk about politics, religion, and you don't talk about your salary. And part of that is, um, you know, knowing, and it was like, you don't talk about your salary, but you can talk about the range and you can research and ask questions. So, um, that, that's, well, that's, also, scary stuff. <laughs> that's also very Southern. I was raised that way. Like you don't talk about your salary cause that's tacky. Yeah. You don't talk about your salary. It's tacky. Yeah, but you, but again, I think you could, you could do research though. Right. Like I know I wouldn't say how much are you making, but Hey, this is what I'm looking into. And do you have an idea? Like, but even that, those questions I wouldn't ask before, you know? Yeah, exactly. And now often when I'm negotiating something with a uh, line producer, whomever, I'll often ask like, you know, particularly if there are a number of people who are doing the same job as me, I will say, well, you know, is this a most favored nation situation? Meaning like we all get paid the same. Or I mean, in this job that I took, not this parenting job, but another one recently, I basically asked like, am I getting paid the same as the others? <laughs> like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> I like that. Am I getting paid the same as the others? I yeah. like that. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Well, this this has been fun. Thank you, Catherine. Um, yeah. And so we're, we're about to beginning. Sorry for the technical difficulties in the beginning. Oh, but... no. I, I, as I said, I, I love this platform that we're able to try things in each each time. Um, I'm learning new things. So for this one, yeah, like my tripod broke right before. So. <laughs> So we're always kind of learning things. And I'm like, hey, but I, you know, this is, this is how we, you know, you learn sometimes. And look, this is producing right too, right? We learn how mm -hmm. to produce. You know, I've done event management. It's kind of like what happens and it's all fun. It's, this is great because we get to chat and kind of share our experience. Hi, Octavia. Hi, <laughs> Sheila. I think I saw Amelia come on. I saw CJ. I saw Kia. So thank you guys who jumped on. And please, if you do not know Catherine, busyk.com. Did I get that right? Busyk.com. And she's also 
busy K on Instagram. And Catherine is always open, um, you know, to answer questions and, you know, to connect. And so definitely, you know, reach out and say hi. She's uh, has been a great friend and resource for me. Oh, thank you, Roz. I miss you. We'll have I to miss see you each too. other. <laughs> Girl, it's not, I, before, I'm going to come out in October. So. <laughs> I don't think I'm doing much until October. I'm going to make sure everything is in place. But we can do live again. We can do live again. That would be great. We, yeah. And so, um, Kia said, thank you both for sharing. This is immensely helpful. This has oh, been great. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Talked about a lot of different projects. And and um, and as Catherine came prepared and gave us some some follow-ups, what we could do for her for her show, um, for her show and different ways we can kind of support the justice system and death row stories is, is what she's producing now. And so I don't know, Catherine, is that um, serious?